Chapter 11, Part 1 of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rascoe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 11, Part 1 On that Sunday, beneath the cloudy sky of one of the first warm days of June, the race for the Grand Prize of Paris was to be run in the Bois de Boulogne. In the morning the sun had risen enveloped in a reddish mist, but towards eleven o'clock, at the moment when the first vehicles reached the Longchamp racecourse, a wind from the south swept the clouds before it. Long flakes of grayish vapor passed slowly away, whilst patches of dark blue sky gradually showed larger and larger from one end of the horizon to the other. And in the bursts of sunshine which kept appearing through the breaks in the clouds, everything sparkled abruptly. The green turf, which was little by little being covered by a crowd of vehicles, and of persons on horseback and on foot. The course still free, with the judge's stand, the winning post, and the starting place. Then, opposite in the middle of the enclosure, the five symmetrical stands with their stories of brick and wood. Bathed in the midday light, the vast plain extended beyond, bordered by little trees, and confined in the west by the wooded hills of Saint-Cloud and Suresnes, which were crowned by the sharp outline of Mont Valérien. Nana, as excited as if the race for the grand prize was to decide her own fortune, wished to have a place as near as possible to the winning post. She arrived very early, one of the first in her silver-mounted landau, to which were harnessed four magnificent white horses, a present from Count Mifa. When she appeared with two postilions on the near-side horses and two grooms seated immovably behind the carriage, there was quite a rush on the part of the crowd, the same as at the passage of a queen. She wore the colors of the Vendeuvre stable, blue and white, intermingled in a most extraordinary costume. The little body and the tunic in blue silk were very tight-fitting, and raised behind in an enormous puff which gave all the more prominence to the tightness in front. The skirt and sleeves were in white satin, as well as a sash that passed over the shoulder, and the whole was trimmed with silver braid which sparkled in the sunshine. Whilst the more to resemble a jockey, she had placed a flat blue cap, ornamented with a feather, on the top of her chignon, from which a long switch of her golden hair hung down the middle of her back like an enormous yellow tail. Twelve o'clock struck. There were still three hours to wait for the race for the grand prize. As soon as the landau had taken up its position, Nana put herself at ease as though at home. She had amused herself by bringing Bijou and little Louis. The dog, asleep amongst her skirts, was shivering in spite of the heat, whilst the child, dressed up in ribbons and lace, remained as though dumb, and had become so pale from the force of the wind that he looked like a wax figure. The young woman, without troubling herself about her neighbors, talked very loud with Philippe and Georges Hugon, seated opposite to her amid such a pile of bouquets, white roses and blue forget-me-nots, that they were invisible below the shoulders. So, she was saying, as he was becoming quite unbearable, I showed him the door, and for the last two days he hasn't been near me. She was speaking of Mifa, only she did not tell the two young men the real cause of the quarrel. One night he had found a man's hat in her room. It had merely been a stupid fancy of hers, a mere nobody she had picked up just to enliven her. You don't know how peculiar he's becoming, she continued, amused at the details she was giving. He's a regular bigot. For instance, he says his prayers every night. Oh, it's quite true. He thinks I don't notice it, as I go to bed first so as not to be in his way. But I have my eye on him. He mutters. He makes the sign of the cross as he turns round to step over me to get to the inside of the bed. How artful, murmured Philippe. Does he do it before and after them? She laughed aloud. Yes, that's it, before and after. When I doze off, I can hear him muttering again. 
but what annoys me is that we can't have the least dispute without his immediately talking of the priests. Now, I've always been religious. Oh, laugh as much as you like, it won't prevent me believing what I believe. Only, he's too bad. He sobs, he talks of his remorse. For instance, the day before yesterday, after our row, he had quite an attack. I began to feel very anxious. But she interrupted herself to say, Look, there are the mignons. Why, they've brought the children. Aren't they dressed up, those youngsters? The mignons were in a very quiet colored landau with the substantial air of people who had made their fortune. Rose, in a gray silk dress trimmed with little cerise puffs and bows, was smiling, pleased at the evident delight of Henri and Charles sitting on the front seat in their rather too ample collegian uniforms. But when the landau had taken up its position and she caught sight of Nana, triumphing in the midst of her bouquets with her four horses, her postilions and her grooms in livery, she bit her lips and sitting bolt upright turned away her head. Mignot, on the contrary, looking very well and lively, waved his hand. It was one of his principles always to keep out of women's quarrels. By the way, resumed Nana, do you know a little old fellow, very tidy in his appearance and with very bad teeth? A Monsieur Venot. He called on me this morning. Monsieur Venot? echoed Georges in amazement. It can't be. He's a Jesuit. Precisely. I soon found that out. Oh, you've no idea what we talked about. It was so funny. He spoke of the Count and of his disunited family, the happiness of which he implored me to restore. He was very polite, too, and smiling all the time. Then I told him I should be only too pleased to do as he wished, and in the end I promised to make the Count return to his wife. You know, it's not a joke, for I shall be delighted to see the whole lot of them happy. Besides, it will give me a rest, for there are days when he is really too tiresome. Her weariness of the last few months escaped her in that cry from her heart. With all that, too, the Count appeared to be in great straits for money. He was careworn. The bill he had given to La Bordette was coming due, and he did not see his way to meet it. "'Why, there is the Countess over there,' said Georges, who had been glancing along the stands. "'Where?' exclaimed Nana. "'What eyes he has, that baby! Hold my parasol, Philippe!' But Georges, with a quick movement, forestalled his brother and was quite delighted at holding the blue silk parasol with silver fringe. Nana looked through an enormous field glass. Ah, yes, I see her, said she at length. In the stand to the right, close to a pillar, is she not? She is in mauve, with her daughter in white beside her. Why, there's Dagonet going up to them. Then Philippe talked of Dagonet's approaching marriage with that stick Estelle. It was a settled thing. They were publishing the bands. The countess objected at first, but the count, so it was said, had insisted. Nana smiled. I know, I know, murmured she. So much the better, Paul. He's a nice fellow. He deserves it. And leaning towards little Louis, she added, Well, are you amusing yourself? How serious the child looks. The child, without a smile, watched the crowd about him, looking very old and as though full of sad reflections on what he saw. Bijou, driven from the skirts of the young woman who was always moving about, had gone to shiver against the little one. The space around was rapidly filling up. Vehicles of all sorts continuously arrived in a compact, interminable line. There were enormous omnibuses like the Pauline, which had started from the Boulevard des Italiens with its fifty passengers and which took up a position near the stands. 
then there were dog-carts victorias and most elegant landaus which mingled with old tumble-down cabs dragged by the most wretched horses and foreign hands and stage-coaches with their owners seated on the top and the servants inside taking care of the hampers of champagne and light traps of every description some driven tandem fashion and accompanied by a jingling of bells now and again a gentleman on horseback passed or a crowd of persons on foot rushed in amongst the vehicles the rumbling noise which accompanied the latter all along the winding turnings of the bois de boulogne ceased as they drove on to the grass nothing was heard but the murmur of the ever-increasing crowd shouts and calls and cracking of whips which resounded in the open air and each time the sun appeared from out the clouds scattered by the wind a blaze of golden light lit up the mounted harnesses and the varnished panels and brought out the brilliant colours of the costumes whilst in that flood of sunshine the coachmen on their high seats were conspicuous with their long whips la bordette was alighting from an open carriage in which gaga clarisse and blanche de sivry had reserved him a place as he was hastening to cross the course and enter the enclosure nana got georges to call him then when he came up what's my price she asked with a laugh she was speaking of nana the filly that nana which had been ignominiously defeated in the race for the diana prize and which even in the months just past april and may had not even placed in the races for the Descartes prize and the grande poule des produits both of which had fallen to lusignan the other thoroughbred of the vendeuvre stable lusignan had at once become chief favourite and had latterly been freely taken at two to one still at fifty replied la bordette the devil then i'm not worth much resumed nana who was amused at the joke then i shan't back myself no i'll be hanged if i do i won't put a single louis on myself la bordette who was in a great hurry was starting off again but she called him back she wanted a piece of advice he knew a number of trainers and jockeys had the best information respecting the different stables twenty times already his tips had come off he was nicknamed the king of the sporting prophets come now which horses ought i to back asked the young woman at what price is the english one spirit at three to one valerio too also at three to one then the others cosinus at twenty-five hazard at forty boom at thirty pichonette at thirty-five frangipane at ten no i won't back the english horse i'm patriotic well what do you say shall it be valerio too the duc de corbreuse looked quite beaming just now well no i'd rather not fifty louis on lusignan what do you say la bordette looked at her in a peculiar manner she leant forward and questioned him in a low voice for she knew that vendeuvre instructed him to bet for him with the bookmakers so as to be more free in his own betting if he had learnt anything he might as well tell her but la bordette without explaining why advised her to trust to his instinct he would lay out her fifty louis as he thought best and she should not regret it all the horses you like she cried gaily as he went off but not nana she's a jade they all laughed madly in the carriage the young men thought it very funny whilst little louis not understanding raised his pale eyes to his mother the loud accents of whose voice surprised him la bordette however was still unable to get off rose mignon had beckoned him and she gave him some instructions which he wrote down in his notebook then clarisse and gaga called him back as they wished to modify their bets they had heard different things in the crowd and would no longer back valerio too but went in for lusignan he quite impassable made notes of what they required 
At length he got away and was seen to disappear between two of the stands on the other side of the course. Carriages still continued to arrive. They now comprised five rows along the barrier bordering the course and formed quite a dense mass streaked here and there by the light hue of the white horses. Then beyond there were numerous other isolated vehicles, looking as though they had stuck in the grass, a medley of wheels and of teams in every possible position, side by side, slantwise, crosswise, and head to head and horsemen trotted across the plots of grass that were still comparatively free, whilst foot-passengers appeared in black groups continually on the move. Overtopping this kind of fairground, amidst the strangely mixed crowd, rose the grey refreshment tents to which the sunshine imparted a white appearance. But the greatest crush, an ever-moving sea of hats, was around the bookmakers, who were standing up in open vehicles, gesticulating like quack dentists, with their betting lists stuck up on boards beside them. All the same, it's awfully stupid not to know what horse wants backing, Nana was saying. I must venture a few louis myself. She stood up to select a bookmaker whose face should take her fancy, but she forgot her intention as she caught sight of a crowd of acquaintances around her. Besides the Mignons and Gaga and Clarisse and Blanche, there were on the right and the left and behind, in the midst of the mass of vehicles which had now quite shut in her landau, Tetanini with Maria Blonde and a Victoria, Caroline Equet with her mother and two gentlemen in a calash, Louise Violaine all alone, and driving a little basket chaise bedecked with orange and green ribbons, the color of the Méchain stable, Léa de Horn on the box seat of a stagecoach, with a crowd of young men who were making a great noise. Farther off, Lucy Stewart, in a very simple black silk dress, was looking most distinguished beside a young man wearing the uniform of a midshipman, in a carriage of most aristocratic appearance. But what really astounded Nana was to see Simone arrive in a trap that Steiner was driving tandem fashion, with a tiger sitting bolt upright behind, his arms folded and quite immovable. She was resplendent, all in white satin striped with yellow and sparkling with diamonds from her waist to her bonnet, whilst the banker with a long whip urged on the two horses, the first a little chestnut which trotted like a mouse, and the other a tall bay, a stepper which raised its legs very high. By Jove! said Nana. That old thief Steiner must have made another haul at the bourse. Doesn't Simone look smart? It's too much. He'll get copped one of these days. But all the same, she exchanged a bow with them from a distance. She kept waving her hand, smiling and turning about, forgetting no one so as to be seen by all. And she continued talking. But it's her son that Lucy is dragging about with her. He looks very nice in his uniform. That's why she's trying to be so grand. You know that she's afraid of him and pretend she's an actress. Poor young man, all the same. He doesn't seem to have an idea of the truth. Pooh, murmured Philippe, laughing. Whenever she chooses, she will find him a country heiress. Nana left off talking. She had just caught sight of old Tricon in the thick of the vehicles. Having come in a cab from which she could see nothing, the old lady had quietly mounted the driver's seat. And there, standing up to the full height of her tall figure, with her noble-looking face and long curls, she commanded a full view of the crowd, and seemed to be reigning over her women people. They all discreetly smiled to her. She, as a superior being, pretended not to know them. She was not there to work, she came to see the races for pleasure, for she was an inveterate gambler and was mad about horses. "'Look, there's that idiot La Faloise,' said Georges suddenly. It was a surprise to all of them. Nana no longer recognized her La Faloise. 
since he had inherited his uncle's fortune, he had become an extraordinarily fashionable young man. With his collar slightly turned down in front, dressed in a light-colored suit which fitted tightly to his bony shoulders, and with his hair curled, he affected a jog-trot of weariness, a feeble tone of voice, slang words and phrases which he never took the trouble to finish. "'But he looks very well,' declared Nana, fascinated. Gaga and Clarisse called La Faloise, throwing themselves at his head, so to say, trying to hook him again. But he left them at once with an air of pity, mingled with disdain. Nana attracted him, and hastening to her, he stood on the step of the carriage, and as she chaffed him about Gaga, he murmured, Oh, no, no more of the old guard. It's no use their trying. Besides, you know, you're now my Juliet. He placed his hand on his heart. Nana laughed immensely at that abrupt declaration before everyone, but she resumed, There, that'll do. You're making me forget that I want to bet. Georges, you see that bookmaker over there, the fat red one with curly hair? He has the head of a dirty rascal which takes my fancy. You go and bet with him. Well, what shall I back? I'm no patriot. Oh, no, stuttered La Faloise. All my money is on the English horse. What a lark if he wins! All the French will go mad! Nana thought his language disgraceful. Then they discussed the merits of the different horses. La Faloise, to make everyone think that he was a judge of horse-flesh, pretended they were all sorry animals. Baron Verdier's Frangipane was by truth out of Lenore. It was a big bay and might have had a chance if it had not been lamed during training. As for Valerio too, from the Corbreuse stable it was not in condition. It had had the gripes in April. Oh, they were keeping that dark, but he was sure of it on his word of honor. And he ended by recommending Azar, a horse belonging to the Michin stable, the worst beast of the lot and which no one would look at. The deuce, Azar showed superb form and such a style. There was an animal that would surprise everyone. No, said Nana. I shall bet ten louis on Lusignan and five on Boom. On hearing this, La Faloise burst out again. But, my dear, Boom is simply awful. Don't back him. Even Gasque, the owner, won't. And Lusignan, he's not in it. All rubbish. By Lamb out of Princess. Just think of it. Not the ghost of a chance for anything by Lamb out of Princess. All too short in the legs. He was almost choking. Philippe observed that notwithstanding all that, Lusignan had carried off the Décor prize and the Grande Poule des Produits. But the other was ready for him. What did that prove? Nothing at all. On the contrary, they should beware. And besides, Gresham was to ride Lusignan, so what was the use of arguing? Gresham had no luck. He never won. And the discussion, which started from Nana's Landau, seemed to spread from one end of the race ground to the other. Screeching voices were heard. The passion for gambling passed over all, giving a flush to the faces and putting confusion into the gestures, whilst the bookmakers were furiously calling out the prices and inscribing the bets made. Only the small fry of the betting fraternity were there. The big bets were being made inside the enclosure. It was the greediness of the smaller gamblers risking their five francs, displaying their eagerness for a possible gain of a few louis. In short, the big battle was expected to be between Spirit and Lusignan. Some Englishmen, easily recognizable by their appearance, were walking about amongst the different groups as though at home with flushed faces and already triumphing. Brahma, 
a horse of Lord Redding had won the grand prize the previous year, a defeat for which all French hearts were still bleeding. This year it would be a regular disaster if France was beaten again, so that all the women were dreadfully excited on account of national pride. The Vendeuvre stable became the rampart of the honor of France. They all backed Lusignan, they upheld him, they cheered him to the echo. Gaga, Blanche, Caroline, and the others all put their money on him. Lucy did not do so because her son was with her, but it was said that Rose Mignon had commissioned La Bordette to back him to the extent of two hundred louis. Only old Tricon, seated beside her driver, awaited the last moment, very cool in the midst of the wrangling, predominating over the increasing uproar, in which the names of the different horses were continually repeated in the sprightly remarks of the Parisians, and the guttural exclamations of the Englishmen. She listened and took notes in a majestic manner. "'And Nana,' said Georges, "'is no one backing her?' "'No, no one was backing her. She was not even mentioned. The outsider of the Vendeuvre stable was eclipsed by Lusignan's popularity. But La Valoise raised his arms in the air and exclaimed, "'An inspiration! I shall put a louis on Nana!' "'Bravo! I'll put two, said Georges. "'And I three added Philippe. And they kept increasing their amount, pleasantly paying their court, quoting figures as though they were bidding for Nana at an auction. La Faloise talked of covering her with gold. Besides, everyone ought to back her for something. They would go and canvass among those willing to bet. But as the three young men hastened off to carry out their design, Nana called to them, Remember, I'll have nothing to do with her, not on any account. Georges, Ten louis on Lusignan and five on Valerio too. They rushed away. She, greatly amused, watched them glide amongst the wheels, stoop beneath the horses' heads, and beat all about the place. As soon as they recognized anyone in a carriage, they hurried to them and lauded the filly to the skies. And great bursts of laughter passed over the crowd as now and again they looked back and triumphantly held up their fingers to show the number of louis that had been bet, whilst the young woman standing up in her carriage waved her parasol. However, they did not meet with much success. A few men allowed themselves to be persuaded. Steiner, for instance, who felt strangely moved at the sight of Nana, risked three louis. But the woman almost emphatically refused. Thank you, they did not want a certain loss. Besides, they were not in a hurry to add to the success of a beast of a girl who put them all in the shade with her four white horses, her postillions, and her air of devouring everyone. Gaga and Clarisse stiffly asked La Faloise if he thought them a couple of fools. When Georges boldly presented himself at the Mignon's carriage, Rose, highly incensed, turned away her head without answering. One must be a dirty baggage to allow one's name to be given to a horse. Mignon, on the contrary, followed the young man, looking greatly amused, and saying that women always brought luck. Well, asked Nana when the young men returned after a long visit to the bookmakers, you're at forty said La Faloise. How at forty? cried she in amazement. I was at fifty. What has happened? La Bordette just then returned. They were clearing the course and the ringing of a bell announced the first race. And in the uproar that this occasioned, she questioned him respecting the sudden rise in price, but he answered evasively. No doubt there had been a few inquiries about the filly. She was obliged to be contented with that explanation. Besides, La Bordette, who appeared to have something on his mind, told her that Vendeuvre intended coming if he could possibly get away for a time. 
The race ended almost unnoticed in the waiting for the big event when a cloud burst over the course. For some little while the sun had disappeared and a dull light darkened the crowd. The wind rose and the rain came down, first in big drops and then in torrents. There was a momentary confusion. Shouts and jokes and oaths were heard on all sides, whilst the people on foot scrambled under cover in the refreshment tents. In the carriages the women tried to shelter themselves, holding their parasols with both hands, and the bewildered footmen hastened to raise the hoods. But the shower ceased almost immediately. The sun reappeared with dazzling splendor, shining amidst the last fine drops of rain. A long strip of blue appeared in the place of the cloud as the wind carried it over the bois. And the sky became quite bright, raising the laughter of the women who no longer feared for their elegant costumes, whilst the flood of golden sunshine in the midst of the snorting of the horses and the helter-skelter and agitation of the soaked crowd shaking off the wet lit up the ground all sparkling with drops of crystal. Oh, poor little Louis, said Nana. Are you very wet, my cherub? The child, without a word, let her wipe his hands with her pocket handkerchief. She then wiped Bijou, who was trembling more than ever. It was nothing, only a few spots on the white satin of her dress, but she didn't care. The bouquets, freshened up, glittered like snow. And she, feeling so happy, smelt one of them, wetting her lips as though in dew. The shower, however, had had the effect of suddenly filling the stands. Nana looked at them through her field-glass. At that distance one could only distinguish a compact and mixed mass piled up on the different tiers, a dark background broken by the pale faces. The sun filtered in through the corners of the roof, curtailing the seated crowd with angles of light and giving a washed-out appearance to the costumes of the women. But Nana was most amused by the ladies whom the shower had driven from the rows of chairs placed on the gravel at the foot of the stands. As admission to the enclosure was rigorously denied to all gay women, Nana made the most spiteful remarks about the respectable members of her sex, who she considered were shockingly badly dressed and looked highly ridiculous. A murmur ran through the crowd. The Empress was entering the little stand in the center, a pavilion in the form of a Swiss cottage, the large balcony of which was furnished with red armchairs. "'Why, there he is,' said Georges. "'I did not think he was on duty this week.' Count Mifa's stiff, solemn figure had appeared behind the Empress. Then the young men began to joke, regretting Satin was not there to go and give him a knock in the stomach. But Nana, looking through her field-glass, caught sight of the head of the Prince of Scotland in the imperial stand. "'Look, there's Charles,' she cried. She thought he was fatter. In eighteen months he seemed to have become broader, and she gave some details. Oh, he was a devilish strong fellow. Round about her, the other women in their carriages were whispering that the Count had given her up. It was quite a story. The Tuileries had become scandalized at the Chamberlain's behavior since he had been going about with her openly, so to preserve his place he had put an end to his connection with her. La Faloise impudently repeated the story to the young woman, again offering himself and calling her his Juliette. But she had a hearty laugh and said, It's absurd. You don't know him. I've only to whistle to him and he'll throw everything up for me. For a few minutes she had been watching Countess Sabine and Estelle. Degenet was still with them. Faucherie, who had just arrived, disturbed everyone in order to get to them and he also remained there smiling. Then she continued, disdainfully pointing to the stands. Besides, you know all those people no longer amaze me. I know them too well. You should see them with the gloss off. 
No more respect. Respect is done with. Filth below, filth up above. It's always filth and company. That's why I won't put up with any nonsense. And she made an extended gesture which included all, from the grooms leading the horses on to the course to the sovereign herself, who was conversing with Charles, a prince, but a dirty fellow all the same. Bravo, Nana! She's capital, Nana! exclaimed La Faloise enthusiastically. The sounds of the bell were lost in the wind. The races continued. The race for the Isparant prize had just been won by Berlingo, a horse belonging to the Michin stable. Nana called to La Bordette to ask him for news of her fifty louis. He laughed and refused to tell her which horses he had backed so as not to change the luck, he said. Her money was well invested, as she would see by and by. And as she told him of her two bets, ten louis on Lusignan and five on Valerio too, he shrugged his shoulders with an air of saying that women would make fools of themselves in spite of everything. This surprised her a great deal. She could no longer understand anything. At this moment the animation increased around. Luncheons were spread in the open air to help to pass the time until the race for the grand prize was run. Everyone ate and drank still more, anywhere, on the grass, on the high seats of the stagecoaches and the drags, in the Victorias, the Brooms and the Landaus. There was a general spread of cold meats and unpacking of hampers of champagne, which the footmen brought from under box seats. The corks flew out with feeble detonations which were carried away by the wind. Jokes were bandied about. The sound of breaking glasses introduced cracked notes into the nervous gaiety. Gaga and Clarisse were making quite a meal with Blanche, devouring sandwiches on a cloth which they had spread over their knees. Louise Violaine had alighted from her basket chaise and joined Caroline Equet and on the grass at their feet some gentlemen had set up an imitation bar, where Tatan, Maria, Simone, and the others came to drink, whilst close by, up aloft, there was quite a band on a stagecoach with Léa de Horn all emptying bottles as fast as they could and getting quite tipsy in the sunshine, shouting and gesticulating above the crowd. But soon everyone pressed round Nana's Landau. She was standing up, filling glasses of champagne for the men who came to shake hands with her, one of the footmen, François, handed up the bottle, whilst Lafaloise, imitating the voice of a mountebank, called out, "'Walk up, gentlemen. It's all for nothing. There's some for everyone. Do be quiet, my dear fellow,' Nana ended by saying. "'We look like a lot of buffoons.' She thought him very funny, however, and was immensely amused. One moment she had the idea of sending Georges with a glass of champagne to Rose Mignon, who pretended she did not drink. Henri and Charles looked bored to death. The youngsters would have liked some champagne. But Georges, being afraid of a row, drank the wine himself. Then Nana recollected little Louis whom she had forgotten behind her. Perhaps he was thirsty, and she got him to take a few drops of wine which made him cough frightfully. "'Walk up, walk up, gentlemen,' repeated La Valoise. "'It doesn't cost two sous. It doesn't cost one sou. We give it for nothing.' But Nana interrupted him, exclaiming, Look, there's Bordenave over there. Call him. Oh, please run and fetch him. It was indeed Bordenave who was walking about with his hands behind his back, and a hat that looked rusty in the sunshine, and a greasy frock coat all whitened at the seams. A Bordenave disfigured by bankruptcy, but still as furious as ever, displaying his misery amongst the world of fashion with the cheek of a man ever ready to violate fortune. The devil! What style! 
said he, when Nana, like the good-natured girl she was, held out her hand to him. Then, after tossing off a glass of champagne, he uttered this remark full of deep regret. Ah, if I was only a woman! But damn it all! It doesn't matter. Will you return to the stage? I've an idea. I'll take the Gaiety Theatre, and between us we will carry Paris by storm. What do you say? You at least owe me that. And he remained standing, grumbling to himself, though happy at seeing her again for, as he said, that confounded Nana was balm to his heart merely by living before him. She was his daughter, his very blood. The circle increased. Now La Faloise was pouring out, whilst Philippe and Georges went in search of more friends. Slowly but surely everyone was attracted to the spot. Nana had a laugh and a witty remark for everyone. The different bands of drinkers drew nearer. All the champagne scattered about came towards her, there was soon but one crowd, but one uproar around her landau, and she reigned among the glasses held towards her, with her yellow hair flying in the breeze and her snow-white face bathed with sunshine. Then to crown all, and to finally settle the other women, who were enraged at her triumph, she filled her glass and raised it on high in her old posture of Venus victorious. But someone was touching her on the back, and on turning round she was surprised to see Mignon on the seat. She disappeared for a moment and seated herself beside him, for he had something important to say to her. Mignon was in the habit of saying everywhere that his wife was ridiculous to have a grudge against Nana. He considered it stupid and useless. "'This is what's the matter, my dear,' murmured he. "'Be careful not to make Rose too wild. You understand, I prefer to put you on your guard. Yes, she has a weapon.' and as she has never forgiven you the little duchess affair. A weapon, interrupted Nana. What the deuce do I care? Listen, it's a letter that she must have found in Faucherie's pocket, a letter written to that wretch Faucherie by Countess Sabine, and on my word it's all there in black and white. So Rose intends to send the letter to the Count to be avenged on you and him. What the deuce do I care? repeated Nana. It's awfully funny, though. Ah, it's so true about Faucherie. Well, so much the better. She annoyed me immensely. What a joke it'll be. But no, I don't want it to be done, hastily resumed Mignon. It would make such a scandal. Besides, it would be of no use to us. He stopped, afraid of saying too much. She exclaimed that she was certainly not going to pull a respectable woman out of the mire. But as he persisted, she looked him full in the face. No doubt he was afraid of seeing Faucherie back in his family circle if the countess were exposed. That was just what Rose wished, at the same time desiring vengeance, for she still entertained a tender feeling for the journalist. And Nana became thoughtful. She was thinking of Monsieur Venot's visit and was forming a plan whilst Mignon was trying to convince her. Well, suppose Rose sends the letter. There'll be a great scandal, won't there? You will be mixed up in it. Everyone will say it's your fault. Then the Count will at once separate from his wife. Why so? asked she. On the contrary. But in her turn she interrupted herself. There was no need for her to think out aloud. At last she pretended to enter into Mignon's views so as to get rid of him. And as he advised her to give in a bit to Rose, to pay her a little visit, for instance, there before everyone, she replied that she would see, that she would think about it. 
A sudden uproar caused her to stand up again. On the course some horses passed like a flash of lightning. It was the race for the city of Paris prize which fell to Cornemuse. Now the race for the grand prize was about to be run. The fever increased. Anxiety seized on the crowd, which stamped and swayed in an endeavor to make the time pass more quickly. And at that last moment a surprise bewildered the betting men. The continual rise in the price of Nana, the outsider of the Vendeuvre stable. Gentlemen returned every minute with a fresh quotation. Nana was at thirty. Nana was at twenty-five, then at twenty, then at fifteen. No one understood what it meant. A filly beaten on every race course, a filly which that very morning could not find a backer at fifty. What could be the meaning of that sudden craze? Some laughed and talked of the clean sweep made of all those idiots who were allowing themselves to be taken in. Others, serious and anxious, were sure there was something up. All sorts of stories were recalled of the robberies countenanced on the race-course. But this time the great name of Vendeuvre silenced all accusations, and the skeptics found most believers when they prophesied that Nana would come in a good last. "'Who rides Nana?' asked La Faloise. Just then the real Nana reappeared. Then the gentleman bursting into exaggerated laughter gave an indecent meaning to the question. Nana bowed. "'It's Price,' she replied. And the discussion recommenced. Price was an English celebrity unknown in France. Why had Vendeuvre engaged this jockey when Gresham generally rode Nana? Besides, everyone was surprised to see him trust Lusignan to that Gresham who, as La Faloise said, never came in first. But all these remarks were lost in the jokes and the contradictions and the extraordinary hubbub of various opinions. To pass the time, everyone returned to the bottles of champagne. Then a whisper passed round, the groups made way, and Vendeuvre appeared. Nana pretended to be cross. "'Well, you're nice not to come till this time. I who've been longing to see the enclosure.' "'Come, then,' said he. "'There is still time. You can have a look round. I just happen to have a lady's ticket.' And he led her off on his arm. She delighted at seeing the jealous looks with which Lucy, Caroline, and the other women watched her. The two Hugon and La Faloise, remaining in the Landau, continued to do the honors of her champagne. She called to them that she would be back directly. But Vendeuvre, having caught sight of La Bordette, beckoned to him, and a few brief words passed between them. Have you picked up everything? Yes. For how much? Fifteen hundred louis, a little everywhere. As Nana, full of curiosity, was listening, they said no more. Vendeuvre was very nervous, and his clear eyes seemed lighted up with little flames of fire, the same as on the night when he frightened her by talking of burning himself in his stable with his horses. As they crossed the course, she lowered her voice and said, I say, just tell me this, why has the price of your filly gone up? It's creating quite a sensation. He started and exclaimed, Ah, so everyone's talking of it. What a set they are, those betting men. When I have a favorite, they all jump at it, and there's nothing left for me. Then when an outsider's inquired after, they clamor and cry out as though they were being fleeced. Well, you know you must put me on my guard, for I've been betting, she resumed. Has she a chance? A sudden rage overpowered him without any apparent reason. Eh, hey, have the goodness not to badger me any more. Every horse has a chance. The price has gone up, of course, because some people have been backing her. Who I don't know. 
I'd rather leave you if you're going to continue your idiotic questions. This way of speaking was neither in accordance with his usual temper or habits. She felt more surprised than hurt. He too felt ashamed of himself, and as she stiffly requested him to be more polite, he apologized. For some little time past he had been subject to these sudden fits of temper. No one belonging to the gallant world of Paris ignored that on that day he was playing his last cards. If his horses did not win, if they lost him the considerable sums for which he had backed them, it would be not only a disaster, but a regular collapse. The scaffolding of his credit, the grand appearances which his undermined existence, destroyed by disorder and debts preserved, would tumble and noise his ruin abroad. And Nana, as everyone also knew, was the man-destroyer who had finished him, who had been the last to attack that already damaged fortune and had cleared off all that remained. The maddest caprices imaginable were related. Gold thrown to the winds, an excursion to Baden, where she had not even left him the money to pay the hotel bill, a handful of diamonds flung into the fire one night of intoxication to see if they would burn like coal. Little by little, with her big limbs and her noisy vulgar laughter, she had taken complete possession of that air, so impoverished and so cunning of an ancient race. At that hour he was risking his all, overpowered by a taste for what was vile and idiotic that he had even lost the strength of his skepticism. Eight days before she had made him promise her a chateau on the Normandy coast, between Havre and Trouville, and he made it a point of honor to keep his word. Only she preyed on his nerves. He thought her so stupid that he could have beaten her. End of chapter 11, part 1